45 minutes was not necessarily enough time for people to be able to be super thoughtful. Privilege is really best understood relatively. People aren't going to be able to unpack that in this like short amount of time. Right. I brought up the idea of doing two rooms and I, I mean, I had my fingers crossed. I wasn't sure if creative time would say yes, because basically that essentially kind of doubled the scope of the project, um, but they were all for it. They were all for taking that risk. And I was like, okay. And so that's when the whole lab thing came about. Let's make it about that. Let's make it all about winning. Let's make it all about success. It would sort of um, tap into this idea of neutral authority. And then with that, I could play with the idea of what is fair in a room, right? One of the things that I wanted to highlight is the sort of invisibility of privilege. Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. We often think of people as so individual, so removed from their context, as individuals. But try as we might, we are the constantly shifting point that sits at the intersection of our internal identity and our external environment. And if you think about the curve of human history, this fact has been the point of thousands of years of frustration. It's a little bit of an adversarial relationship. Most of what we categorize as necessities, clothing, shelter, access to clean water, are acts of environmental design. But on this episode, we're discussing how this is changing, how shaping an external environment can enable changes in our internal environment rather than prevent them. This is part two of a conversation with Risa Puno, creator of The Privilege of Escape, an escape room that uses environmental design to explore the concept of privilege. This portion of the conversation is by itself fantastic and illuminating and illustrative, but if you find yourself wanting to know a little bit more about the context of the piece, you should go check out the first part of the interview, episode 23, which you can find wherever you might be listening right now. Beyond that, I hope you enjoyed this window into the world of escape rooms, social dynamics, and the way our environment shapes our awareness. Well, okay. I mean, I don't know how much background you want about the actual design of it. Is that something you think you'd oh, be interested yes. in hearing about? Oh, yes. About, Most or? definitely. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so when I originally proposed it, it was, it was a much lamer idea. I mean, it was, the title was the same. It was an escape room, but it was, it was more like the puzzles themselves had to do with issues surrounding um, privilege. And um, it was, it was honestly a lot more heavy handed. Right. Um, And it wasn't until um, more brainstorming with creative time that I was thinking of and doing more research. And I was thinking about how privilege is really best understood um, relatively. And so that's when I wanted to, I brought up the idea of doing two rooms and I, I mean, I had my fingers crossed. I wasn't sure if creative time would, would say yes. Cause basically that essentially kind of doubled the scope of the project, um, but they were all for it. They were all for taking that risk. And I was like, okay. And so that's when the whole lab thing came about because I wanted it to be, uh, well, first of all, my background is actually in a math science background. Like, um, 
I actually went to Brown. Um, I originally entered in their eight-year medical program. Um, I was going to be an orthopedic spine surgeon. So like my summer job is harvesting spines from fresh cadavers. And um, like I've right, published right. a couple of, wow. <laughs> you know, the huge. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so I think I, you know, still like sciencey labby type stuff. Like that to me was a sort of, a conceit that made sense in terms of why you would divide people up and why you'd have different circumstances. Right. Um, other than, um, you know, other than reasons like, uh, sexism or racism, you know, like other than things like that, another reason why you might divide people up like purposefully is, um, based on, um, wanting to do an experiment. And so, um, I also thought that it would make it, it would sort of, um, tap into this idea of neutral authority, right? Yeah. And this idea of um, examining why why the conditions are and what you can hypothesize ahead of time. And then also what you can conclude based on the results of the test, right? And so I just thought that that seemed really fitting. Um, yeah, and the, Yeah. And so like the exercises themselves within the rooms, like so rather than making them about privilege, I realized like people aren't going to be able to unpack that in this like short amount of time. Right. It's like, cause we even made it, it's only 45 minutes rather than like the more common 60 minute room, because we wanted, we didn't want to like keep people forever. And we wanted to allow time for discussion afterward. And so um, 45 minutes was not necessarily enough time for people to be able to be super thoughtful and, and, when I'm in a room, they may tell me like that I'm there to figure out what happened to the archaeology professor or I'm there to like find an antidote for some virus that's going to kill the world or something like that. But like, honestly, I'm just there trying to solve the puzzles and I'm just trying to succeed, you know? Right, um, right. It's almost an afterthought. Like Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, from what I hear, there's some, there's like several ones, um, around the country, like escape rooms that can do it really well and really immerse you in the, um, in, in that narrative. But yeah. like, I think that that takes a really special talent to be able to do. And so, um, and especially cause I don't have a theater background. Like I don't have this like, um, like narrative creation background. I, it, like while we had amazing collaborators, it's like that I feel like would have been a little bit of a stretch and, and also not so fitting with my previous work. Right. And so, um, what I wanted to focus on was like, okay, if it's all about, if it's all about the puzzles in the room, I was like, let's make it about that. Let's make it all about winning. Let's make it all about success. And then with that, I could play with the idea of what is fair in a room. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's why all of the puzzles within the room are all of the um, exercises. We didn't actually say puzzles. <laughs> we only use the word exercises. And um, all of them are inspired by popular games. Um, one, because that's just the language that I speak, right? But also because, because it, it speaks to rules of engagement. It speaks to fairness. It speaks to like winners and losers and, and success. And so, um, and, but the path through the path through the puzzle flow, I guess, is that at first they operate more like what you would expect, right? Like, um, like here, here's a mini spoiler, but again, I feel like, um, 
I feel like the New York Times already spoiled this part, so it's not that big of a deal. Um, but it's like there's this big, there's this tower that looks kind of like a giant Jenga tower. And like you pull, you pull pieces out of it like you do with Jenga, right? But as you go through the game, um, the the exercises um, sort of, they, they go further and further from the original inspiration game. Um, like there's there's one at the end that is inspired by Kerplunk, which seems nothing like Kerplunk. Um, most people get surprised that that's, that's the, that's the game that inspired that, that particular exercise. Um, but because the whole idea is that we're trying to change the game. Right. And so that's, that's how the narrative flow goes through it. And, And there's specific things within, you know, each puzzle too. And like, there's Easter eggs, like all the codes, um, come from certain things um uh which again i i would love to spoil but um i don't i want know to do i that. know i'm resisting like asking asking more that making that i know <laughs> i know part of me is like mm, maybe i should just tell you and then i can tell you if it's not going to be remounted and then you can just edit that in but it's it's fine it's fine um but yeah so but just so you know it's like i guess if it does get remounted and if people end up playing again they should look up the codes after, or at least um, like in the the required reading, the the uh, follow up reading that we give the our test subjects afterward. There's like um, little underlined numbers within it, and that's actually where the the codes come from. So you can see the inspiration there. Um, but yeah, and so so there's there's Easter eggs within it, and certain things where it's like, oh, there were patterns the whole time, but you just needed a new perspective to be able to see them or things like that, right? But like really, this is if you totally nerd out about the project. But like when you're in the room and in those forty five minutes, you're just you're just doing your best to win. You just want to win, and you're trying to work together with these people you don't know. And I think that um one of the things that I'm was really interested in, in escape room design, which I've learned so much about is, um, is this idea that confusion and frustration are, are part of it. It's like built in, like people want that people pay for that. Um, you know, with mini golf, it's like people pay for frustration, but not confusion. Like there's not really confusion. You know what you're supposed to do. It's just difficult to do it. Um, whereas in an escape room, it's like, you're supposed to not know what you're supposed to do right away. Right. And you're supposed to try and figure that out, which to me, one seemed really fitting to deal with something like privilege. Cause it's not, there's not like an answer, right. I, I, there's ideas, but you're still just trying to figure it out and trying to navigate the discussion. Um, but I think also it's just something that I think heightens that feeling of success when you get it. And I think as a designer, you think a lot about what is fair. Um, Like, for example, I don't know, when I was doing research, uh, I played this one room. There were like 16 four-digit locks in the room. So every time you got a four-digit code, you'd have to enter it into every single lock. And like, dear God, like, you know, which some uh, escape room designers see that as a fair challenge, right? Like for me, I don't see that. I mean, mostly I don't see that as a fair challenge because I don't see that as a fun challenge, right? Like I like challenges that, that, um, well, they talk about like an escape room design. They talk about, um, aha moments versus, um, process, right? Like the aha moment is like what it takes to, to understand, um, how to do something right. And then process is what you do after you understand it to complete it. And so trying to find a balance of that, I mean, I'm much more 
I much more prefer the aha moments like process to me. I usually find extremely tedious. So I tried to find ways to make that interesting within within my rooms. Like I tried to make it so that the process parts at least required a lot of teamwork still um, versus one person just doing a repetitive thing. Um, But yeah, so thinking about what is fair to sort of put the players through. And then also within within this two two room format where you're comparing them against one another, what's fair there, right? And what are the assumptions of fairness that we go into in an escape room or in games in general, right? Like what do we what do we accept yeah. as the rules, right? And what do we what do we assume that we're doing? Like because for me, one of the things that I wanted to highlight is the sort of invisibility of privilege. I wanted to talk about how um privilege is everything that we don't have to deal with. Right. Um, like I was talking to, um, like every moment during this, this project, I, it was just a big thing of unpacking my own privilege too. You know, it's like, I, I'm not an educator. I'm not somebody who considers myself fully woke. Like I'm, I'm along this journey as well. Right. So this is just a description of, of how I'm dealing with it too. And so um, there was this one moment where I was talking to the actor, one of the actors who who played uh, our research analyst at the end, and she actually had a particularly hostile uh, debrief experience where there was oh, somebody who was, yeah, who was being like pretty, pretty rude to her, you know, in, in the, in the, in the group. And, you know, I said to her, I was like, um, well, we built in a line, like a sort of nuclear option. If somebody's being like, like, like a total asshole or being like a, you know, really rude or mean or shutting down other players, you know, things like that. So the line is, um, you just sort of look at the person and you say, excuse me, um, what's your name? And then they tell you your name, you write it down and you're like, okay. And then you just move on. Right. It's oh, just like, that's so, brilliant. you know, put them in check. And I reminded her of that. And she said, right. She was like, yeah, she was like, I'll, I'll think about that. She was like, I almost used that. And then she said, um, she was like, but as a black woman, she was like, especially as a dark skinned black woman, you know, people often see me as aggressive, even before I open my mouth. She was like, so I just, I feel like I have to be really careful about especially with these where I don't shut people down or I don't, you know, I don't do something where they, it escalates their hostility. Yeah. And I said to her, I was like, um, you know, I absolutely, I totally get that. Like, do not feel like you have to use that line at all. Um, I think that's my privilege speaking, right? Like as, as, um, as a Southeast Asian American, right. It's like, I, uh, people often don't even think I'm angry when I'm seething mad, you know, cause, uh, cause, cause there's, there's other things that come with being my skin color. Right. And, right. and being my ethnicity and, and, um, and so I never have to worry about people thinking I'm aggressive. I never have to, um, like code switch so that people see me as non-threatening. And so yeah, that was certainly something that you that, do moderate the perception Right. Absolutely. And so that's something that like, I, it was just, there were just layers upon layers, right? Like people would ask, um, what happens if somebody, um, who, how can I say this without spoiling? It's like, what happens when like a certain kind of person plays in the privileged room, right? Like, um, somebody who like, 
because of the, might not be able to take advantage of the conditions that we set forth in the room, right? But they're still in the privileged room. And I said that, that to me is like being a non-Black person of color, right? Because, um, because white privilege does reflect on me. It's like, I may not be able to take advantage of those room conditions personally, but I often still reap the rewards at the end, right? Because of either my association with the people in that room or just the fact that, um, the fact that I don't have to deal with the things that the other people have to deal with. Right. And so, um, and I think that there's so many, there's been so many layers to this project, both as, um, personally, but also just hearing people talk about it and it, and hearing people talk about how, um, because they had somebody else in the other room, somebody that they cared about, it made them a lot more empathetic to the hardship that they were going through, which I think makes sense. Right. Like, I think that it's, um, it's a lot easier to be like heterosexist and not even think about what anybody else has to do with unless like, unless you find out that you have a queer child, right? Like your kid comes out and then like, yeah, I think people tend to become more compassionate at that point, you know? And I think, um, I mean, if assuming they weren't already, obviously, but like, so that's another thing that was uh, like, some people tried to say to me, like, wouldn't it be great if you could play both rooms? And like, you sure, that'd be great. First of all, that would be, that would mean only half as many people would get to do the experience logistically. But also, um, I think it was important to me that you had to listen to the other group describe their experience. Like, like it required you listening to other people, you, cause you can't step into somebody else's shoes in life, right? You have to be willing to listen and you have to be willing to accept what they're saying is true in order to, to really understand, in order to be empathetic and in order to, to be driven to want to change things. And so, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, pretty interesting to see how that, that played out and, and how people listen to each other and whether or not they did. Yeah. Yeah. Most certainly. Because really, even if everybody did play two rooms, it almost defeats the point that the, the idea is that in order to truly access empathy and understanding and compassion and just awareness, you have to be able to do it, not by experiencing it through someone else and connect to that person, that person's story, that person's journey, struggle, or lack thereof. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something that I, I love listening to people's stories. Like I love, that's how I love to get to know people. Right. Like I, I, I think that that's, it feels like, um, it feels like a gift when people are willing to share um, their experiences with me. And I think that that was something I really appreciated this project uh, with this project, because I heard so many stories. I mean, some of them just from like my weird brother, eye in the sky surveillance sort of situation, but also people sharing in person, whether um, literally in person in front of me, but or one-to-one via email or DM or something like that. It, it it's, um, it's been really, really great to hear about that. Like somebody once told me, um, 
like I met them after they had already played and they said that, um, they, the weekend they played or the weekend after they played, they went to a wedding and they spent the entire weekend talking to the other wedding guests who hadn't taken part in the experience and like talking to them about it. And they really got into some, she told me they got into some sort of deep dive discussions about, about privilege and about, um, like social inequity and, um, and she was talking about how one of them described this project as sort of a refrigerator moment. Like it's like you, you put it in the refrigerator and then you take it out and like unpack it a little more and you put it back in the refrigerator and you just keep revisiting like the leftovers of the, of the experience, which to me was, that was music to my ears. I mean, that is everything I've ever wanted for this project. And so that, that was so nice to hear, you know? Calling all immersive adventurers, explorers, connoisseurs, and artists. The immersive revolution is just beginning. All that is to say, we would love any feedback that you might have on the show. What do you want to hear more of, less of? Anyone in particular you'd like us to have on the show? I would love to hear your thoughts. So please rate us, review us, or just drop us a line on the website at immersionnation.com. I always love having conversations about this wide and wild world that we are both living in and creating. Once again, this is the Emergent Nation podcast. Thank you for joining us in this adventure. <laughs>